So we are actually toward the end of a sermon series that we've been doing, and the sermon series is called Songs of the Savior. We've been doing this uh, series really since the very beginning of the church, and it's where we take a particular Christmas hymn or Christmas carol, and we take a look and we see what scriptural truths are to be found within that particular carol or that particular hymn. So a couple weeks ago, Jeff talked about angels we have heard on high. We understand that probably pretty intuitively from Scripture, the story of the angels. And then uh, last week, we did a different um, sermon, and uh, we la- that week we looked at O Holy Night. And O Holy Night, we took a look there at what was going on and what scriptural truths were to be found there. And then today, we're going to be looking at the hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And so in just a moment, David is going to be playing a couple of those, uh, those choruses or, and a couple of those stanzas, and then we'll jump back in. So before we do that, however, let me take a moment and let's pray. Father, thank you so much um, for taking care of us. Thank you for providing us. Father, we thank you that your ultimate provision was found in you giving your son Jesus for us to save us from our sins and to save us, uh, Father, from the grave. Father, I prayed this morning um, that even as Rob's already said, that we might not leave this place this morning without having had a life-changing encounter with you, the living God. Father, we pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. We all have favorite hymns. We all have favorite carols. That may be in your top 10. I wouldn't be surprised if it is for some people. Um, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel has an interesting backstory, as do many of these hymns. Uh, This particular hymn or carol was popularized by a British pastor named J.M. Neal back in 1851. He was an interesting person. By all accounts, Neil was a brilliant scholar and was offered any number of different significant positions, um, but he turned all of those positions down, and he spent his whole adult life working in a retirement home for the poor in England, just south of London. Now, his other contributions to the church were mostly around hymn writing. In all, he compiled four different hymnals, And he personally wrote hundreds of different hymns, although he never claimed any of the rights to his texts. Instead, he was, in his words, pleased that his translations could contribute to hymnody as the common property of all Christendom. In other words, he never made any money from his literary or musical works. Sounds like a a pretty interesting guy. As I mentioned a moment ago, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel was translated into English and popularized by Neil in 1851. The actual verses of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel date all the way back to at least the 8th century, where they were used as an Advent liturgy leading up to Christmas. Each verse of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel begins with one of the Old Testament names for the Messiah. It's funny, as I was doing research for this, I was already part of the way into writing this sermon, and I thought, man, that would be a really interesting sermon series maybe to do in the next couple years, where you start with one of those Old Testament names. Ultimately, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, is an invitation to rejoice. You heard David just sing those words a moment ago, but it's also an opportunity to find hope in Jesus as the one who will right all wrongs and the one who will make all things new. Let's take a moment now, and let's take a look at just a couple of the scriptural truths that are captured within this carol. The first scriptural truth that we see in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is this, that we can rejoice because Jesus has rescued us from exile. We can rejoice because Jesus has rescued us from exile. Listen to the first, uh, first stanza. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom 
captive Israel that mourns in lowly, lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. One of the most common emotional experiences that we have as humans is the feeling of being alone, right? That's one of the things that's common to all humanity is that at some point we all feel alone. That's even true for introverts. Even introverts at some point in time want to be around people. Usually it's just people that they know. I have an introverted friend who once told me that his greatest fear was dying alone, right? This great fear of being alone. During much of the COVID pandemic, some of the most heart-wrenching photos that many of us saw were of children or of husbands or wives standing outside of retirement home or hospital windows while their loved ones wasted away in isolation. You probably can picture some of those images in your mind of people standing outside while their, while their elderly relative was behind glass alone. A recent Harvard study revealed that isolation during the pandemic took a disproportionate toll on young people, 40% of whom reported that they felt lonely frequently or almost all of the time. One result of this pandemic of loneliness was that one out of four teenagers reported seriously considering suicide during the pandemic. Being alone, being in exile, is not a neutral experience. In his book, Understanding Who You Are, psychologist Larry Crabb argues that the terror of isolation, and he calls it the terror of isolation, is a fundamental aspect of the way that sin has impacted humanity. As a result of the infection of sin, we are spiritually separate from God. As a result of the corruption of sin, we are relationally separated from other people, sometimes even the ones to whom we're the closest. As a result of the pollution of sin, we're even separated from ourselves. We feel that. Physically, sometimes we're separated. We die, we get sick. Psychologically, we're separated. Vocationally, we're separated from ourselves. So much of our human experience is one of exile. We see each of these various aspects of this exile highlighted in Genesis 3's account of the fall. Let me read this account, even though many of you are probably familiar with it. This is God basically talking about how sin has impacted us. He says this, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. This is a form of spiritual exile. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Again, part of what Eve was called to do is now broken. It's a vocational exile. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. This is relational exile. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and you ate from the, the, the fruit of the tree from which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. Again, that's vocational exile. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. That's physical exile. We're not who we were created to be physically. So the Lord God banished him, that is Adam, from the Garden of Eden. Again, this is spiritual exile. It's all in Genesis chapter 3. Why do we feel like something is wrong with us? Why do we feel that? And the answer is because something is wrong with us. We are fractured because of sin. 
We're a mixture of divinity and depravity. We're a combination of beauty and of brokenness. Why do we feel like we don't belong here? Because we don't. Like all humans, since the fall, we're living in exile, and we are constantly longing and looking for our true home. C.S. Lewis addresses this longing in his chapter on hope in his book, Mere Christianity. I'm going to read a relatively long portion of it, if you'll just hang in there with me. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love, or first think of some foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I am not now speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages, or holidays, or learned careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. Now, there are two ways of dealing with this fact, and there's one right one. Number one, the fool's way. This is Lewis's language. He puts the blame on the things themselves. He goes on all his life thinking that if he only had tried another woman or went for a more expensive holiday, or whatever it is, then this time he really would catch this mysterious something we are all after. He calls it the fool's way, but you could also call this person a hopeless romantic, always looking for the next person, always looking for the next thing in the hopes that that finally might satisfy them, but it never does. The second way Lewis talks about is he says, is the way of the disillusioned, sensible man. He soon decides that the whole thing was moonshine. Of course, he says, one feels like that when one is young. But by the time you get to my age, you've given up chasing the rainbow's end. And so he settles down and learns not to expect too much and represses the part of himself which used, as he would say, to cry for the moon. He calls this the disillusioned, sensible man. Somebody else might call this the stoic. This person might say, the problem with life is that you just hope for too much. It's better just to shut down your desires altogether. That makes life less painful. It makes life easier. But then Lewis says there's what he calls the Christian way. The Christian says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other never to mistake them for the something else of which they're only a kind of copy or echo or mirage." I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of my life to press on to that other country and to help others do the same. It's a great quote by Lewis. I would argue that the longing that Lewis is describing there is something like a memory, Augustine actually writes at length about this idea. Something in us, something in you, something in every human 
remembers Eden. We remember what we were created for. We remember hazily who we were created to be. We remember that before the fall, we were not alone. We walked with God, and we existed in perfect harmony with creation, with one another, and even with ourselves. We also remember that before the fall, we had a true home. But ever since the fall, we have been living in exile. As today's carol reminds us, we mourn in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Our journey back home began at Jesus' arrival 2,000 years ago. Jesus himself tells us in John chapter 14 that that's what he came to do, to bring us back home. Look at verses 1 and 2 of John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? So if it's true that Jesus came to rescue us from exile, what should we do? We should rest, we should trust, and we should rejoice. Jesus invites us to be at peace in John chapter 14. He said, let not your hearts be troubled. And so now during this Advent season, we can rest. And Jesus reminds us to trust in him in John chapter 14. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. And so we have to make a choice to trust, to believe that he is who he claims to be. And finally, as the hymn writer encourages us to do, we must also rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel has come to thee, O Israel. And so we rejoice because we know that ultimately we are going home. What else do we see in this carol? What's another scriptural theme that we see in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel? The second theme we see in this carol is that we can rejoice because Jesus has rescued us from the evil one and from death. O come, thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save and give them victory o'er the grave. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. And so in the first stanza of O come, O come, Emmanuel, we're invited to rejoice because Jesus' arrival has begun the process of rescuing us from exile, because if Jesus were brought back home where we belong and were brought back into a relationship with our Heavenly Father, here in the second stanza, we're invited to rejoice again, this time for a different reason. In this stanza, we're exhorted to rejoice because Jesus has saved us from Satan's tyranny and from the grave. Let's take a quick look at whether or not these two adversaries are actually found in Scripture. Let's begin first with the idea of Satan. In Revelation 12, we read the following, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, and listen to this, on those who keep the commandments of God and who hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sands of the sea. So the Bible definitely clearly teaches that we do have an enemy in Satan. John tells us, that he comes to deceive, that he comes to accuse, and it tells us that he's on a warpath, 
Specifically, we're told that he makes war on Christians, those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Satan's deceptions and his accusations have created absolute chaos throughout history, and especially in the lives of believers. That chaos happens when we choose to listen to the voice of the evil one, and you can imagine what listening to that voice sounds like, instead of listening to the voice of our heavenly Father. What about our enemy, the grave? Is that an accurate scriptural truth? While any number of people might debate whether or not Satan exists and is a real threat, no one that I know, whether they are a Christian or otherwise, would debate that death is an objective and inevitable reality. In an article that was recently published entitled uh, World Death Rate Holding Steady at 100%, uh, the argument in this uh, article makes that claim. And if you don't mind, I'm going to read a quick blurb from it. World Health Organization officials expressed disappointment Monday at the group's finding that, despite the enormous efforts of doctors, rescue workers, and other medical professionals worldwide, the global death rate remains constant at 100%. Death, a metabolic affliction causing total shutdown of all life functions, has long been considered humanity's number one health concern. Responsible for 100% of all recorded fatalities worldwide, the condition has no known cure. It's a real article. I was really hoping that with all these new radiology treatments, rescue helicopters, aerobics TV shows, and what have you, that we might at least make a dent in it this year, WHO Director General Dr. Gernst Blot said. Unfortunately, it would appear that the death rate remains constant. Many are struggling with the high mortality rate that it represents a massive failure on the part of the planet's healthcare workers. The inability of doctors and scientists to adequately address the issue of death is nothing less than a scandal, concerned parent Marcia Gretto said. And this was found in a publication called The Onion, which titles itself America's Finest News Source. Sounds like a valid source of information to me. All right, so the point here is, to make it kind of funny, is that we do all die. We know that. But the question is, this Advent season, is how does Jesus' arrival rescue us or save us from the grave? In Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church, he writes at length of the essential nature of Jesus' resurrection for our hope of life after death. Let me read just a section of 1 Corinthians 15. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, if it's not true, if Jesus didn't really come, if he did, didn't really rise from the dead, then we actually should be pitied. But, he says in verse 20, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive but each to his, his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. In other words, Jesus is going to be conquering all that is wrong, all that is broken. He's going to make all things right. The last enemy we read here in verse 25 to be destroyed is death. What Paul is arguing and what Christianity is built upon is the resurrection of Christ. 
Jesus' victory over death assures us of ours as well. Because he lives, we will too. So Jesus' arrival brings life and hope out of the chaos of Satan's tyranny and out of the chaos of death. That's what this verse is arguing. That's the point of this stanza. If you remember, it begins this way. It says, O come, thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny, from the depths of hell thy people save, and give them victory o'er the grave. We are familiar with that name or that title, the rod of Jesse, from this hymn, but the question is, do we know what it means? We find that name for Jesus in Isaiah 11, verses 1 and 2, We read there this, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. If you've ever cut down trees, if you've ever cleared land, then you'll understand this imagery. Trees lay lifeless in the mud after you do a clear cutting. Random stumps are littered here and there. They're charred by fire. Everything looks lifeless and gray, especially over the winter. But then spring arrives. The imagery here in Isaiah 11 is of an old dead stump amidst all of that desolation and destruction with a green shoot rising out of it. Isaiah was prophesying about a day when Israel would lie in devastation. The people of God would be forlorn. They would think that they were forgotten. It would look like there was no hope for them, and sometimes it looks like there's no hope for us. But then, out of the chaos of sin and death would spring new life, and new hope. Out of all of that rubble will come the Savior of the world. Out of all of that rubble, true life would finally appear. During World War II, German bombers rained destruction upon Britain. The Blitz was a German bombing campaign against the United Kingdom in 1940 and 1941. The term was first used by the British press and originated from the term Blitzkrieg, the German word meaning lightning war. At one point, beginning in late November of 1940, German bombers pounded London for 56 straight days. In all, nearly 50,000 people, 40,000 of which were civilians, lost their lives. Countless homes and buildings were destroyed in the bombings. Much of the London uh, landscape was reduced to utter and complete rubble. And yet, when spring arrived, something remarkable happened. Out of the gray desolation sprang new life, but not just any new life. Beautiful wildflowers, some of which were thought to have gone extinct, sprang up around various parts of London out of the rubble. Botanists concluded that the seeds had laid dormant under buildings and under other structures until the bomb blast exposed them and gave them the opportunity to germinate in the light of the sun. Undoubtedly, The landscape of your life has at times been reduced to rubble as well. And if it hasn't yet, I hate to tell you, but it will be soon. You've lost a loved one to cancer. Maybe you've faced the prospect of death yourself. Maybe you've lived your life under the terror of old age and disease. Maybe your life has been disintegrated because of the tyranny of Satan's power. Maybe it was an addiction that blew up your world. Maybe it was infidelity. Maybe it was divorce. But whatever the case, Jesus' arrival is actually an offer of hope. First Thessalonians tells us that because of Jesus, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We do grieve, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope. 
We have the hope of the resurrection, and we have the hope that comes from knowing that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Because of Jesus' arrival, we not only have hope, but we can also rejoice. That's why Paul, facing his own pending death in prison, could write the following, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus.